Hi, this is Kathleen Mercury with another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries, and I'm delighted to be speaking with Scott Kelly, who is a teacher from the Great White North up there in Canada. How are you, Scott? I'm doing really well. Uh, it's not particularly white here right now, though. Um, it is like 35 degrees. Oh, wait, that would be white. Where you are. Uh, <laughs> Celsius, it's 35 is pretty hot. Yeah. I think everything is melting right now, but that's a whole yes. other podcast. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, so Scott and I met through um, Board Game Geek. I have a, a thread there called GSL Want to Be On It, where I bump it every now and then, just basically looking for teachers who do cool stuff with the classroom. And Scott responded, heeded my call. And I really, really like what you're doing. And you're going to tell us more about it, obviously, because you use some pretty high level history games history-based games with your students. So I, I think it's going to be really interesting when you're talking about using such high-level content with kids, and um, can't wait to hear more. So just to get us started, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? All right. Um, I'll tell you, the timing on your bump on that post is really fortuitous, as in I'd only joined Board Game Geek two days before you did that, <laughs> and then discovered this forum about classroom games, and thought, oh, this is really interesting, because that's what I do. Let's see what other people are doing. And there it was. So I looked at it and said, wouldn't that be interesting? Looked at the date. And I think you originally posted that back in like 2017 mm -hmm. or something. And then I saw the date of the most recent post and it was that day. So I'm like, well, here's something I got to get in on. You know, just some nobody here. I'll respond to that and see what happens. And you responded. And then here we are. Here we are. Having a great time. So, yeah. Well, and it's funny, too, because today is uh, was our first day of school with the kids back. And so, uh, you know, it's just with all the planning and everything that goes in the school year. And then they actually show up and you're off and running. So and then there's just that, you know, the nerves of the first day and everything. So right. I love that we're celebrating my first day by talking about, you know, what we both love, which is teaching. So this is great. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, um, I don't know how much detail and how much of my story you want. I'm sure there's a time limit, and it's not uh, my biography that we're doing. But I've actually only been teaching, I'm going into my seventh year. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is a second career for me. Um, I was working, uh, actually, for Games Workshop here in Canada. Okay. And then um, the Canadian uh, business, there's some reductions in the business. So I left to go to university, which I didn't do after high school, as a mature student. Um, you can't see it, but I have to do the air quotes when I say mature student. Um, and then figure I get a degree and whatever, then at least I've got an education allowing me to get into something, something else, something higher. So I went back, I uh, did linguistics. And while I was there, I found a lot of students had no idea what was going on. So I would help them out. I would help explain things. They, uh, in the department, the professors, the teachers noticed what was going on. Then they would hire me for extra help. For the other students, they uh, gave me a tutoring job. Eventually, I got to be a TA during my uh, last year in the undergrad. And then in my very last year, one of the uh, teachers worked for an um, education institute, the University of Toronto's educational um, section, and said, well, we see what you're doing here, and you seem to be doing a pretty good job of helping these other students out with the, the teaching. Um, have you ever thought of going into teaching? And I said, no, not really. And then she said, well, there's this program that uh, isn't very well known. Why don't you apply for that? And I went, well, I guess so. Okay. And I did. I applied for it and I got in. And next thing I know, I'm in teacher education. And then I'm a teacher, and which sometimes even surprises me to this day. Yeah. 
Well, I, both of my parents were te- are teachers, were teachers, and my sister is a teacher. So I was, I'm pretty well, pre- was pretty well prepared when I went into teaching, but I didn't start till I was 30. I did other things first. Right. And I think in a lot of ways, if I hadn't had, you know, family members who were teachers, I mean, there was the one story that I talk about with my mom when I called her to complain about something during my student teaching. And all she said was, what'd you expect stupid? And I was like, you know what? <laughs> You're right. Like I'm yeah. the daughter of teachers. There's the world we want, the world we have. And this is what the job is sometimes, right. you know? Um, but it's a tough job. We don't have to get into this, but it is a tough job. I think for people mm-hmm. who've worked in other fields professionally, yeah. teaching is way harder mm-hmm. and very different than what they think it's going to be, especially when you've worked in other fields as an adult and mm-hmm. you have to sort of shift to schools and the professional expectations that are on teachers that are very different sometimes from people who can just come and go at lunchtime whenever they want that sort of thing. Yes, I found that too. There's a lot of things. Again, I can make a whole different podcast just about <laughs> the, uh, the differences in expectations and what I thought and how it's different from how I remember it when I was there. Yeah. For sure. But uh, yes, you're right. It's uh, a lot of changing of uh, expectations and a lot of uh, needing to adapt. Yeah. But it, sure. I think. I think it helps, though. I think it helps to have that sort of other perspective because sometimes when people, you know, they go from college to the classroom, they've literally never worked anywhere. I mean, maybe for like other side jobs or whatever, but never really worked full time outside of education. And I definitely think that helps. And obviously, with you working for Games Workshop and then the work you do with your students now, I mean, there has to be a connection between those two things. Oh, absolutely. Because I've been working with uh, kids that age. Uh, for quite a long time since I was working for Games Workshop. I was both in mail order and in the retail store. So uh, I used to say, you know, I don't really like kids because they annoy me, which is kind of weird considering how much time I spend with kids, mm-hmm. right? And it comes down to just be able to build a rapport at their level and then try to elevate their level a little bit. And I did get a lot of practice of that at Games Workshop, as well as now that I look back on it, I didn't realize it at the time, but doing things like um, uh, demonstration games in the store or giving kids uh, tips in painting or teaching them how to paint miniatures, that was, I think, the first foray into teaching without realizing that's what that was. Mm -hmm. Still thinking, oh, after high school, I'm never going to go near a school again. I didn't have a really good high school experience, Mm -hmm. especially not academically. Um, But then... Being the situation where a kid comes in and says, oh, I want to paint my guy, but I'm really bad. I can't do it. I'm awful. And look at in the magazine here. I say, well, you know, those are professional painters, right? Those guys are crazy as far as what they can do. Right. Um, but here, just let me show you something. And I give them like five minutes. Here's a little technique. You know, put the color here. Use the edge of your brush to catch the edge. Don't get it in the crack so the shading is still there. You try it. And five minutes later, he's painted a couple of fingers on this guy and gone, oh, I can do it. Mm-hmm. Right. And then he's excited. I'm excited that he's excited that he can do it. Right. Raise his confidence level. And that is the, the reward that I think is the main reward that you get from teaching as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, and that's interesting because my, my, well, it's not, this is really about you. I, I always interject my own little <laughs> stories. But I mean, when I got hired to teach, uh, to be a lifeguard at summer camp for 15, and when I was 15, um, I found out after I got hired that I was going to be teaching swim lessons. I'm like, what are you talking about? I've never taught swimming. Well, my dad was a swimming, diving, water polo coach. So I just grew up knowing how to swim because he would just 
sort of teach us organically as we were playing in the pool. So to actually learn how to take the strokes and break them down, you know, I went from teaching all the drills to where I had then, and this will probably sound familiar to you, made a game up for every Uh single one of the different skills so that by the time the kids came in and when they left, we played a bunch of games and they came out of it knowing how to swim. You know, it's like that sort of like games-based approach, you know, has always sort of been part of, you know, what, you know, who I am as a teacher, but also that what you know that that summer of teaching swim lessons was so formative to me in terms of this was something that I could do and enjoy doing yeah. it's interesting you bring that up because that's a major thing in uh, phys ed right now too uh, at least in the Canadian curriculum okay well the Ontario curriculum because that's where I'm familiar with where you think phys ed well it's all about games anyway uh, but they don't say this this unit we're doing football I'm going to teach you football what they do is they play a game just about throwing a ball somewhere. Or there'll be a game just about how to follow someone and keep tabs on them and then play another game. So they actually do smaller games that uh, use a skill rather than throwing them right into the game trying to get the students to learn all the rules and all the skills at once. They'll have a bunch of smaller games, each one highlighting one of the skills, and then they bring them together. So that sounds very much like the sort of thing that you had done with your swimming. Right. And that's now how, essentially, it's written into the curriculum and how the phys ed teachers are are running it with these sports. Simpler games that build up and build up until you have the actual uh, game that they're wanting to teach. All right. Well, let's let's then talk about how you take uh, kids in your grade 7 history yep. class in which you can give us a like short brief demonstration yeah. uh, description of what that is and then the games you use because it's pretty striking to me that these are some pretty big intense games and mm-hmm. that you have kids playing them i have a lot of questions <laughs> yeah and i'll tell you i i did think it was a, a bit of a risk because uh, i wasn't sure <laughs> risk that's actually kind of a pun because they're very similar to the game risk mm-hmm. uh, but we'll come back to that later um History, I, when I was in grade school, uh, grade 7, 8, I thought it was boring. Uh, Canadian history doesn't have all the cool conflict of European history. And I was well familiar with a lot of European history. I was born in England. Um, I only lived there until I was five. But coming from a British family, my dad was a big fan of European history, right? So he watched the war movies. We had uh, books about um, that sort of thing uh, in the house in, our, in the reference section. Um, I'm pretty sure he had model airplanes and toy soldiers before I did, right? Left over not only from his childhood, but he was still building them and displaying them. So my idea of history through that lens was very much of uh, um, through warfare and war history, which I found interesting. This led to that. These people made these decisions, which caused that to happen. And it became like a series of stories rather than a series of dates, which is, unfortunately, I feel how a lot of history, whether or not it's taught that way, is how a lot of people remember it mm-hmm. being taught. And that's why they find it boring, because, oh, we have to know that this happened on this day. But there's not enough of why that happened or right. how these two things are related. So that was my idea going into it. I decided my program, it was going to be cause and effect and choices. Those are going to be the, the themes. In Ontario, grade 7 is the first time that uh, we do Canadian history in a chronological way. Up until then, it's different topics. Uh, grade, mm-hmm. They've changed it recently over the past couple of years, so I might not have this totally accurate. But grade 4 or 5 is medieval, 
the other one, four or five, whichever one's not medieval, is like ancient history. So they do um, a couple of ancient cultures, uh, Egypt or Greece or Rome. Mm-hmm. Um, and then grade six is all about different communities. So they'll talk about different groups of people who have um, settled in Canada. So they'll talk about the, uh, uh, the loyalists who came up um, fleeing the uh, American Revolution. Uh, particularly the black loyalists, those who escaped uh, slavery into Canada. They talk about the Irish. There's a large Irish population on the East Coast. Um, and there's a, a few others. There's large uh, Polish and Ukrainian uh, populations as well that came over at different time periods. So they'll talk about different communities, but they don't do it in a chronological way, just thematically. So grade seven, it becomes chronological. We start around 1713, the Treaty of Utrecht and then move on up through until the end of um, 1812. So they cover about 100 years in there, in order. And I thought, well, a lot of these things didn't happen in isolation. They happened because other things happened. And that was my goal, is to show how one thing, a choice that's made, an event that happens, leads to another one happening, not just sort of random happenstances throughout history. Uh, so I started there, um, and I thought I could be fairly interesting with it, um, telling stories, because I enjoy telling stories, and if you tell them right, the kids enjoy listening to stories, because really that's what history is, it's a series of stories, Yes. Uh, rather than lists of dates and events, it's like, this happened to these people, and this is what they did about it. And at some point, uh, I mean, totally honest with you, I don't know at what point I decided this, I think it was at the beginning of the year. I did play some games the previous year, but by the time I got the idea, it was a bit too late in the year to work them into my program. Mm -hmm. So at the beginning of the year, I decided I was going to do this. And I went and found some games I thought would fit into uh, the curriculum. So um, I had uh, 1812, the Invasion of Canada by uh, Academy Games. Mm-hmm. And I also wanted to include some earlier uh, stuff as well. So I had to look around, see what I had that fit, and then I went and picked up a couple other games as well. So, um, yeah, you... I now realize I don't remember the other part of your question, so I'm going to stop and let you <laughs> ask me something so I can regather the thread of my thought. That's all right. <laughs> so, you use some pretty heavy games in your classroom mm-hmm. when it comes to teaching history. So, mm-hmm. you. You chose some games because you already had them, it sounds like, but then you picked other games because it was a style that, you know, depth of game that you were comfortable with, Mm -hmm. and then that you felt like you could teach to the students, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, How many copies, and we'll get into the games and how you use it, but do you have everybody playing one game, or do you have multiple copies of different games, multiple copies of the same game that you have students play? I have one copy of each game. Okay, okay. Yeah, which in a class of uh, 24 students I had this past year, well, actually, it varied. I had a smaller class at the beginning of the year, which means every time a new student arrived in the school in grade 7, they came into my class. Mm. So until I caught up to everybody else. So I had between 24 and 26 students um, during that period. And, of course, there isn't a game that you can play with 26 students. Um Actually, there probably are some out there. It'd be a great idea to make one, perhaps, but not the type of game that I was using. So I decided, uh, first off, we'd play in teams. Everyone would have a partner, so it would allow them to discuss their choices. 
And that way, if one of the partners is struggling with understanding a part of the game or part of the rules, they have someone there to discuss it with to help them out mm-hmm. or to help them make a decision. So we're not all waiting for the one person's analysis paralysis to go away. Right. So we can uh, help talk them through it. And then it would also have the number of people I needed to get around the table at the same time. Or the number of uh, players, as it were. Since we'll have two people playing a, uh, one yeah. faction. So I definitely have some questions about how you keep mm-hmm. students engaged. But before yeah. you get to that, yeah. um, describe the type of games that you use. Because they are, like I said, like the heavier type. So right. talk about the games you chose and then kind of how you thought they might go over, how they did go over before we sure. get to like the actual student response. Yeah. The, um, to start with, we were doing uh, 1754, the Seven Years' War, or uh, the French and Indian War, as it was also known. Mm-hmm. And... Academy Games makes a 1754 French and Indian War game. And also the uh, A Few Acres of Snow by uh, Tree Frog Games. Uh-huh. Um, it's a card game, it's a deck building game. And that one's only a two player game. I actually had that one for a while, but hadn't got around to playing it yet. So I remembered I had that one. And it fits fit my theme because that's the time period we were doing. I broke that one open and got that one out and learned that one uh, so I could teach it to the students. And then Age of Empires 3 which I learned was um, reissued as Age of Discovery. What I did was I made the rules available to them by finding PDFs online and posting them on my uh, Google Classroom that all the kids could access so they could pre-read the rules, of which maybe two or three of them actually did. But they were there for them to do so. But when looking through the rulebook, I was looking and was giving rules for pieces that I didn't have. And I realized that what I'd found was the rules for the reissue, which I didn't know they made, because the one I have, I got like 20 years ago. Uh, but I did manage to find the actual one, and I uh, put that up there for them. Now, what was interesting, I found one of the, the struggles or one of the challenges, is that when you mention board games, most students think Monopoly, uh, Sorry, Scrabble, and if they're particularly well-versed in board games, Risk. Mm-hmm. And once I brought a game out like um, 1754, which, which has a map on it with territories and uh, small cubes to represent the armies, they assumed it was a version of Risk, or it was just Risk itself. Because so few of the students were familiar with board games outside the uh, what was on their shelf as a kid, or that grandma's got at the cottage, or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's a lot of focus on the video games. Um, so that was sort of my first challenge, was to give them the idea that there's more out there than what they're familiar with, and then you don't have to roll before you move your guys in every single game. It's mm-hmm. a challenge for some of them. that their turn comes around, they immediately grab the dice like they're going to roll. Um, so there's a little bit of a mindset change for them as well. I took a day uh, at the beginning uh, of the unit, and I said, we're going to play these games this period... I'm going to get some volunteers to sit. I set it up in a central table, and everyone else sat on desks around the outside so they could see over the top, and I just demoed the game. I just did like a, a demonstration. We played like two or three turns so they get the idea. They've seen it played. I let them know that the rule book was available so that they could uh, read it on their own time. And the reason I chose to do the three games at the same time, uh, at least for the first time that I did it, was so I could have everybody playing at the same time. I'd break mm-hmm. them up into groups, they and their partner would choose a game, then the next time we came in, they'd play a, uh, a different one, and then we'd play a different one again. Um, that way I could get the whole class involved at once, and there weren't people sitting around uh, without anything to do. 
Mm-hmm. And, of course, there's writing assignment to go with it. So if they didn't finish early, or um, since a few acres of snow is a two-player game, um, if we did have someone left uh, because they finished, as I said, because they finished early, then they'd have a writing assignment to work on that was based on the game. So they're never left with nothing at all to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I forgot what the rest of the question was. <laughs> I just started talking. And I think I lose no, 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 no. What you're doing was. Okay. Um, um, yeah. So, because that's the thing is, you know, how when you want mm-hmm. to have a game. I mean, I have I teach game design, so I have my kids play games where they can, you know, pick up the box, learn it, start to play it relatively easily on their own right. to make sure that kids are engaged the whole time. And when you have a game with such complexity that involves a lot of, you know, memory of the rules mm-hmm. and, you know, like knowledge about the history, about what, you know, events that you're having them sort of play through... I mean, this seems like a pretty steep undertaking for a lot of kids in this grade level, this age level. I wasn't entirely sure how it was going to go. Uh, some students took to it really well and really quickly. Other ones were a little bit hesitant and skeptical, but they got into it. And there were a few that mostly let their partner do all the, make all the decisions. Because uh, mm. I don't think you're not going to catch everybody every time, no matter how awesome you think your plan is or how engaging it is. Oh, for sure. Yeah, you're not necessarily going to catch everybody. But having a partner means as long as one of the partners is kind of into it, then they can discuss it with them. And then they can say after. So why did you do that? Like, what was the point of that? Uh, what are we doing now? And they're not left feeling on the spot where it's their turn. And maybe they're not totally understanding what's going on. They have someone there to to help them through that part. And then even to discuss it after in, in a bit of a debrief without mm-hmm. them having to constantly ask questions right then and there in the middle of the game. What do I need to do now? Or what do I do on my turn? If their partner can go, okay, we're going to do this. Then when it's not their turn, they can say, well, we did this because of this. And they go, okay, I remember now. So they have someone to help them through it. So that's why another uh, reason I thought the uh, partnering was a good idea. Sure. And um, it, it was a an eye-opening experience, I think, for many of the students. Some of the ones that got really involved were the ones who had very little experience with board games before, other than uh, the more uh, classic and um, uh, archetypal, stereotypical ones that you see, like Sorry and uh, Monopoly and those. So seeing this, I don't know that... I had a bigger effect on their knowledge of history or a bigger effect on their knowledge of games. I have uh, friends who are huge gamers uh, now who talk about their high school experiences. And it was usually their high school history teacher who first showed them Axis and Allies way back in the day. And that turned them on to being uh, a gamer or seeing as board games something bigger and more exciting. Right, either oh, play yeah. Risk in the Classroom or Access and Allies. And that was it for me, actually, as well. I do remember in high school, uh, there was a teacher who had an after-school uh, club and they played Access and Allies. And I think that was one of the first big games, um, strategy games that I played mm-hmm. as well. I played Risk, but Access and Allies, the different pieces did different things. Right? Yeah. So that was that was exciting. So that opening into that, uh, that first step into a larger world um, I hope oh, it sure. stays with yeah. them for uh, you know for quite some time, perhaps some of them. 
I know I'm with you there. I mean, obviously, as uh, someone who you know sees the benefits of games, and yeah. um, I mean, and, and it's cool too when you do have kids who you know have that sort of like they build that attachment to games and gaming, and mm-hmm. it becomes part of who they are, and it becomes their hobby, their interest. It's always exciting. I had apparently one of my uh, high school stu- student who just graduated high school um, sent his little brother a game that he made that he wants me to take a look at. And this yeah. is you know six years of him being out of my class, so. Wow. That's the dream, you know, like is having them connect. So let's talk um, about the games in particular, because there's some things where I thought, because you have a blog about this, and we'll put a link to it where you go in depth about the games and why you chose them, because it's interesting, because, you know, it seemed like just from the initial that you pick games because of the historical content, but then there's also this other aspect, as we all know that games are all different in terms of how they play, and for some, the mechanics of the game really help to underscore um, the historical events that's happening or what the game is trying to simulate. Can you right. talk something about that? Let me see. Ooh, which one to start with? Actually, I might divert from that just a little bit. It's kind of sure. related. But the um, Age of Empires Three was an interesting one uh, because it is about European powers taking over um, the New World, as it were, and fighting over different um, areas and uh, for resources and for control. And what's mm-hmm. interesting is the different pieces do different things. Um, and part of the writing assignment I give them is sort of a comprehension of the connection to of the game mechanics to the history. So I'll give a writing assignment, and the questions will be uh, name three of the pieces in the game and what they do, and how does this piece ability connect to real life? Mm-hmm. So, for example, there's a, a missionary. He's a, he's a priest. And if you send him across... To the new world, when he arrives, he turns into two colonists instead of one colonist. And I say, well, why is that? Why would the piece do that? And get their ideas of, you know, why. It's to get the game pieces aren't just random pieces for people who would have been there with random effects, but the effects are related to history. And they come up with ideas like, well, when he gets there, he's a regular colonist and he converts somebody who's already there because that's what they did. They would try to convert them. It's like, well, there you go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you get um, uh, like sailors and explorers and soldiers and things as well. So for those, what is the purpose? So the mechanics there are create uh, linked to the history, and I was trying to get them to see that, just without me having explained it to them, but knowing that question was coming up, because they read the assignments before that they play the game, that these are things they need to be thinking about and looking out for. So they're looking for that greater depth. Like, why does this do this, and how does that relate to what we've learned in class? Um, I think that's a really critical piece in making this successful, because especially when you said earlier, if you've got kids who are partnered, and if one's not into it, at least they've got someone else to talk about with, Mm -hmm. or to, you know, in my mind, I'm just seeing that one kid can drive the bus, Mm -hmm. and the other kid can sort of sit back and let them, Mm -hmm. you know? And this is a very good way of having them you know, a way that, that, well, there's something that they're responsible for in terms of their engagement, but to really direct their engagement. So even if the game itself isn't grabbing them, they at least, you know, have those sort of knowledge pieces that they can be looking for to help them stay connected in what's happening on the table. Right. Because even though they played as partners, their written assignments were all individual. Mm-hmm. So they couldn't get away with letting the other person do all the work because if they, as you say, drive the bus and they're making all the decisions, when it comes time to write the assignment, they're going to be a bit left out of that if they didn't 
uh, pay attention. But at least mm-hmm. if they weren't too engaged, they can ask after and say, what did we do and why did we do it? So at least they're still getting information and they're having someone explain it to them. Right. So I thought that was so, uh, be helpful for, for that engagement. Yeah. So just recapping the games you use, you use yeah. Age of Empires for colonialism. Yep. Um, and then, so one of the things you talked about was like what matches, what doesn't match history. That's sort of like an overarching mm-hmm. sort of question, I guess, that could go over all of the games you use, correct? Yes. Yeah, I include that one as well for sure. So each of the different uh, colored pieces do represent a specific power. So at the end, they'll, um, if they were playing um, uh, the, the Spanish, for example, and they ended up taking over most of Canada and Northern Territories, and they would write, well, that never happened because here's what actually happened. And they, mm. they, they can make those uh, comparisons. Uh, one thing I would do differently, you didn't ask me, but I'm going to say it anyway. Specifically with that one is mm-hmm. uh, because we're pretty much caught up in the game and, and the mechanics. Uh, one thing I will do again next time is include uh, a bit of point of view of the uh, the colonies, the areas that are being taken over. Mm-hmm. Uh, because although there is resistance there, and you manage to take over a place when you flip over the card, uh, there's a number of um, indigenous people there, and as long as you have more soldiers than they have indigenous people, then you win the territory. So there's a purpose of soldiers. What's the impact of that, that the way that you win the territory is through soldiers rather than uh, any other means. So there's something I would explore a bit more uh, next time I do that to bring in that other perspective because it is a game about colonialism. It is about taking areas and stealing the resources. Um, but it is historically important. Uh, something yeah. we can say, let's say, well, obviously, it's, that was, it wasn't good, right? That was a bad thing to do, but why? Right? I think the why gets left out. Um, but I think this makes a good game is a good starting point for that, to have that discussion, to say, yes, we're all playing in European powers, and we're taking all this area, and you're all excited because you've got all the resources, and you own all this area, but what are the impacts of that that maybe you didn't consider at the beginning, or what were the real world impacts? So, uh, that one, uh, unfortunately, in my uh, efforts to get the games in and get them working, and uh, get ones that match the theme, I didn't get to that, so that's something I'm definitely going to include in my next go with that one. Yeah. Uh, with the other games um, it, that take place in Canada, there is more of a, um, a focus on the, um, the natives, the First Nations people, so that one also really did lend itself well to those conversations about, yes, we're fighting the French versus the British, and then later on we're fighting the British versus the Americans, and, but who is in the middle and what's the outcome for them. Mm-hmm. So I think that's also an important conversation to have, which, when not necessarily completely written into the game, is still mentioned in such a way you can have that conversation afterwards. Yeah. Um, there you go. So there's something I would do differently for that one specifically. But the sure. question of what happened that was the same, what happened that was different, that one I did to all of the games. Uh, actually, we'll, mm-hmm. come back. we'll come back to that part in a minute, I think, if you don't mind, because your, your question you asked is about the mechanics, and a few acres of snow has an interesting mechanic um, for thinking about, is that when you get into a battle over a city, then you have to put cards down that have the combat symbol on it, so it'll be soldiers or ships or militia or something like that. 
And when you place them in a siege box, you don't do a battle in a single turn. Every turn you check to see um, if you have more than two points worth of combat than your opponent. Of course, on their turn, you can play two cards, so you can put one down and add one in. Then on your turn, you'll add one down. But maybe next turn you won't put anything, you'll put two. So now you're up by one, you can melt of one. So it can go on for quite some time. But because it's a deck-building game, and you're drafting cards into your uh, into your deck, if those cards are in the siege box in combat, you don't get those back until that combat is over. Which means those cards aren't being used in your deck. And those cards have more than one use as well. So if you're using it for combat, the other use which you might want to use it for is not available to you. So I thought that was a really interesting way of showing how the borders, the combat, ties up resources. Because now you can't use those resources while that is going on. And I thought that was interesting. So I made sure that they were aware of that part as well. As part of the write-up, what part did you find like, frustrating? Or when could you not get your cards when you wanted them? That sort of thing as part of your strategy. And then the kids uh, were saying, well, I got into the siege and went on a while, but then I couldn't do anything else I wanted to do because all my cards were in that pile. I had to decide if I wanted to put more in there to win or just let the other person win just so I can get the cards back to do the other things I wanted to do. And I thought that was an interesting aspect for that particular game um, that I actually didn't even really think of the first time I played it through myself. But as I played it again, showed the students how to play it, watched a couple of them play it, I really started to notice that. And uh, you know, I'd point that out to them or better see if I could get them to notice it and then point it out to me. So that was an interesting tie between the mechanics and uh, the history and an example of how you can use the way the game works to imitate history rather than just, I'm going to put my soldiers in your territory, roll the dice to see if I kill all your guys so I take your territory. Mm -hmm. So I thought that was an interesting one. Uh, on average, how long does it take for you to teach, have the kids play, and then do your sort of debriefing wrap-up after the game? I had um, one-hour periods, and in the mornings when I had these uh, classes, these students, I three days a week I had two classes with them back-to-back. So we did the games when we had two hours. So I could do the demonstration of a game in one class. There's a lot of setup, a lot of build-up. So mm -hmm. I'd do a demonstration of a game during one class, during the one-hour class, discuss it, talk about it, give what you need to do, have any questions. i do that for each of them, and then we'd start uh, the following week. So it was pretty much a week of setup, and then the following week was playing the games. Uh, the, mm -hmm. the debrief was, essentially was the, uh, was the assignment. Mm -hmm. um, and then the discussion we had after the assignments were turned in. So it was, I, mean, I set aside, I guess, uh, two, uh, two weeks for the playing of the games, uh, learning and playing, and then um, the actual write-up, I asked them to hand in about a week after that. Mm -hmm. So they said, I'm just trying to keep up. How many mm -hmm. games do you use total? So we have Age of Empires, mm -hmm. A Few Acres of Snow, yeah. 1754. That's right. So I did those for one unit, and then we did 1812 about a month later. Okay. So I did it as a, a separate unit. And that actually, because uh, the Academy Games uh, use a similar, very similar system, 
Uh, mm-hmm. Very similar mechanics from 1754 to 1812. They were already familiar with how it worked. There were just a few uh, minor changes. But since they had the idea of it, they picked that one up uh, a bit quicker. So that was good. They were already familiar with uh, the base mechanics of it. Sure. Um, how did student how did student responses change from the beginning in the first game to the later games that you played? To start off with, there was some confusion. Uh, like I said earlier, it was very unfamiliar to them. Uh, I did have a couple of students who had played Risk before. Uh, I had one student who was a uh, big fan of history, actually. He really uh, enjoyed history, did a lot of reading and uh, watching of documentaries and videos on his own. So he was right into it. He was super excited. But most of the other ones, they gave me some confused looks, uh, a lot of questions, but I uh, was able to answer those. And once we got started, most of them, even those at the beginning who were unsure, really did get into it. Most of them. As I say, you can't always get everyone as excited uh, as you want them to be. Uh, there were a few that sort of went along with what their partner was doing and kind of gave a bit of input here and there. Um, I would say I was surprised how much they got into it because then I would be suggesting that I didn't think it was going to work. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I don't want to say I was surprised by it, but I was definitely pleased by it. Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a pretty risky maneuver as a teacher Mm -hmm. to commit this amount of time to something that Mm -hmm. if it doesn't work, you know, I mean, it's okay to do it once and then have it not work. But I mean, obviously, if you were to keep doing this and the hope's like, well, maybe they'll get it and maybe they'll get it. You know what I mean? Like, obviously, that could be problematic. Right. But uh, I think uh, they went really well. I think they did once they uh, got started to get into it. Um, I think part of the evidence for that would be I opened up my lunch time. Sorry. I opened up the classroom at lunchtime and I would stay in and eat my lunch in in the classroom. And I invite them to come in and play at lunchtime if they wanted to. So Mm -hmm. some of them who hadn't played a game yet because maybe they missed a day of class when we were doing it, they can bring in some friends and they can catch up by playing at lunchtime. But I got students coming in every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, even if they'd already played it in class and we'd like to play again. I brought some friends to play again. Well, I brought some friends from another class and they play too. I said, well, as long as you can explain them to them as you go, I'm over here eating my lunch and I'll help you if you want. But sure, if you can catch them up, then go ahead. And it got to the point where they could play an entire game of 1812 in the one hour lunchtime. Uh, because they got oh. so efficient at uh, getting it out and setting it up and playing the game and not wasting too much time reading silly between turns that uh-huh. they could play. There's a two-turn uh, introductory game uh, uh-huh. that I showed them how to play, and yeah, they were able to finish that within the one-hour lunchtime, setting it up, eating while they played, and then put it away just before the bell rang. Uh, we uh-huh. actually found that I showed them the introductory game, but they did get efficient enough at it that during our two-hour um, actual game time in class, they were able to play the full game rather than it's just the uh, two-turn introductory game. Those that were really engaged in it and really into it. And it's like, we, instead of stopping here, we got plenty of time. Can we just keep going? Let's, you know what? Go ahead. All right, carry on. Play the extra turns. And uh, they played it that way instead. Now, not everybody in the class is going in. However, there was a pretty good core, and some of them were ones that, if I were to, I don't want to prejudge your, um, the students, but if I were to have looked at and picked out the ones I thought were most engaged and most interested, I wouldn't have got 100%. Mm-hmm. 
thought that one. They were somehow yeah. she did surprise me uh, because they weren't generally engaged or didn't seem to be the kind of thing they'd expressed interest in before. But it could only have been because they were never exposed to it before. And then here it is, you know, presented in an interesting way. I'm excited about it, obviously. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't hide my enthusiasm for it. And then um, I get some of them enthusiastic about it as well. And as long as they're willing to give it a try, and uh, like an honest try, because you think you do get a few negative attitudes, well, they'll pretend they don't like it because that's how they've set up their identity as someone who's not been to school. I don't do such things. Right. And they'll pretend they don't like it just to maintain their identity. The other ones did set that aside and go, you know what, I'm actually enjoying this. I'm going place more. I get that. Well, and I think, too, for kids, you know, it's like they'd rather play what to them is a bad game mm-hmm. than to have the alternative of just sort of like a more traditional, you know, didactic sort of like form of instruction you know they just sit there take notes answer some questions you know i mean you're getting i mean with gaming there's not just like the mental aspect but then Mm -hmm. there's that like physical component too where they're like they're making the choices they are as active of an agent as you can possibly get and i mean if you want to resist resist that but at some point like you have to bend down and put your cube on the spot you know so you're forcing them into this world in terms of that simulation and i think that does give you an advantage because you know it's like they did it they put the piece there they committed that was their action and you know you can get them involved by just getting them to do it it's like when i'm teaching kids a game and somebody walks by and they're saying oh i'll just watch nope have a seat. I'm going to teach you because it's way more fun to play it than just to watch, you know, and getting them into it is, you know, the goal for anything that we do as educators is how do we, you know, get kids to engage and stay engaged. Yes, that engagement is a huge part. I totally agree with you um, because there's a lot of resistance to that. There are some students who will be engaged in anything you give them because they are either have been given that sense of importance of school and learning from home, and they're they're into it, um, or maybe they come up against it on their own. So you know what? I'm going to be good at school because I see it's important, and I just I want to have a good school time. I want to get good marks, um, mm-hmm. and I want the teachers to be happy with me. And then on the opposite side, you'll get the ones that'll come in and say, "I don't care what you do, I'm not going to like it." And then those all the ones in between, and which could go either way. So those are the ones that you sort of hope to bring over to the, yes, learning can be fun and interesting. It's not just a chore that you have to go through for, you know, 18 years and just to get a job. Right. And so um, so that engagement, uh, that interest is fairly high-level priority for me. Um, mm-hmm. And it is a challenge, right? Sometimes you come across something you have to teach and you'll think about it and you'll think about it. And you'll say, we're going to read this snippet and we're going to answer some questions to make sure you understand it. Because I've thought about it and thought about it. And it's more efficient just to do that and get through it quickly, knowing that you've got the information you need because you're going to need it for the next thing we're going to do, than try to make some great big grandiose unit about this one little piece of information. And that's part of the challenge is that balance of can you make everything super exciting engaging or does that then become the baseline and either the expectation goes up or they get a bit of burnout from being too engaged and <laughs> you're trying to make everything this great big exciting production 
where uh, sometimes you say, you know, we can calm this down. You guys are going to read this for a little bit, answer your questions. Do you have any questions? We'll go over it to make sure you've understood it. Okay, now we're going to move on to the next bit, which is going to be more fun. And at that point, is that in itself a lesson? Are we teaching how to do something that's kind of boring because you have to, rather than me going out of my way to make sure you enjoy it? And that's kind of the a bit that I'm working on the balance with right now, as much as I want everything to be a big fun game. And right. sometimes you have to go, you need the coping strategies to get to this part that you don't find interesting, so we can get to the part which you will find interesting, because I've made something really cool for us to do. Yeah, and that's, I was actually thinking of like sort of a follow-up question, but honestly, you just sort of already answered it, and it's mm-hmm. probably an obvious answer anyway, is, yeah. you know, how would your classes be different if you didn't use this. Now, it's not like you would just automatically go to just, you know, here's the information, write this down, learn this, you know, Mm because you're right. There are times where, you know, it's like what we call post-holing. You know, there's sometimes you, you know, kind of have to cover things in surface, but then if you can pick those moments where you want to go deep, you know, that's where you can get some really interesting things happening, but you can't do it all the time. We just don't have time for that. And so... And thinking about asking, like, how would your classes be different without this? I mean, obviously... We know because we see examples of that all the time. Right. I like to use this as a, a reinforcement. So I didn't teach the um, lessons of what's going on uh, through the games. I made sure we'd already talked about it ahead of time. So we did read a little bit in uh, a textbook and um, talk a bit about it, make sure they understood uh, what was going on. We watched uh, some videos. Um, videos are great if they're well-made because they can... Well, the engagement's higher because it's like you're watching TV, you know, like for that. Um, but there's a bit of action in there. You get to be acting in there. You get to sets. You get to see places that they otherwise wouldn't get to see. It makes it more interesting. So I found with these games, particularly the historical ones, it becomes a reinforcement because they're looking at the maps and they're seeing places that, is, that they've already talked about or already seen in the, um, in the videos. So that recognition is there. So maybe they weren't super paying attention, um, but there's some place names that came up. And they look on the map and they go, oh, wasn't that that place from the video? And someone else goes, oh, yeah, that's the place where like, that guy did that thing. And then they're interested because they're seeing it more than once. It's not just some random thing that came up in the video and say, well, maybe it's important because it's on there. Mm-hmm. Um, one example is 1754. Uh, you play cards... Uh, as well as moving your troops in the territories and fighting. And you play cards and they have different events. Uh, well, you have to play the cards to move, but there's also cards that are events. And one of them, um, for the British side of the, of the French Indian War, is the George Washington card. Because at this point, George Washington is an officer of the British Army, because it's a mm-hmm. revolutionary. And um, they played the George Washington card, and the George Washington card allows you to build a fort on any of the territories that has a little fort marker printed on it, you take one of the fort tokens and you put it on there. So wherever you feel the fort is most important for your tactics at that point. So one student uh, said, oh, we're going to play the fort. So the, the, sorry, the uh, George Washington card. And he gets his fort token, he looks at the board and says, oh, we should put it here. And it, the forts are actually labeled on the board. So he looks and goes, oh, it's Fort Necessity, just like the one George Washington actually built in real life. So I looked at him and said, so what are you going to do now? And he looked at me and said, I'm going to write that down for my assignment. And there you have it. Right? Yeah. So it reinforces that. It shows that he's got, he was 
um, sort of paying attention, but internalizing some of this information that we saw yeah. in the video, because now it's applied it. Oh, yeah. I've seen it come back again. And that's when it sticks around and you get that repetition. You go, oh, I recognize this. And now that I've recognized it, it's going to stay in my mind because not only was I given that information originally, but I've recognized it, which has reactivated that memory. But the excitement of recognizing it, that emotional burst that goes with it, is really active in uh, memory formation. So having the emotion that goes with it, having a feeling that goes with, oh, wait, there's this cool thing is more likely to remember that cool thing. Right. So I well, especially with be... the, yeah, especially with adolescents whose amygdalas is, you know, mm-hmm. driving far more than their frontal lobes can be <laughs> at times, yep. you know, having that ability to encode emotion into memory. We talk about that and that's again, a whole other topic right. too. Um, so I just, this is just a question for me as an American. Yeah. And so it's probably an, I don't mean this to be too American centric, but especially <laughs> when you're playing his, like these sort of history games, mm-hmm. Do you feel like they're balanced in terms of perspectives and events that are happening as they're pre- presented in the games? Uh, well, it's interesting for 1812 uh, specifically, uh, because the war is probably taught differently in history classes here as it is there. Mm-hmm. Um, but the game, Academy Games, is an American company. Um, so I feel it's uh, fairly balanced. Um of all the times we've played it, I think the ratio of uh, British versus American wins is pretty even, if I were to think back. I'm not say that I don't have a, uh, an infallible memory, but mm-hmm. I do recall um, victories on both sides during the course of playing the game, and I think they were fairly even. Um, the cards themselves uh, definitely represent actual historical figures, and they represent uh, the effect of the cards, uh, represents things that are related to what those historical figures actually did, or what the events that are depicted in them actually did. So it never presents um, either side as being the good side or the bad side. They're just the two sides that were involved. Like, mm-hmm. the, the, the historical figures on uh, one side aren't drawn like they're all mean and evil looking, and the other ones are all, like, <laughs> happy and friendly or anything like that. So, uh, yeah, I just, yeah, I just sort of wonder, because especially, like, because that's where I was thinking, um, is the War of 1812 is probably taught very, very differently. And mm-hmm. we were, before we recorded, yeah. you know, I used to teach, we, I was, we were talking about how I used to teach middle school history, which is this, and, um, and, and I really dislike <laughs> teaching American history one. I would much rather have all the ghost stories in, in world history because mm-hmm. I just think you can make them so much fun for kids. Um, and I, I really appreciate this approach um, because obviously going this sort of in-depth when we have so much more knowledge about what happened and letting kids wrestle and play with those choices as opposed to sometimes more simplistic portrayals of world history. Now, obviously, for other events, um, world history events, we, there is a historical record, and that can be quite extensive, but just in general, given that we're teaching it to younger ages, it tends not to be as steep in terms of what the kids are presented with. Um and so I like that there's this approach, but yeah, when it comes to teaching the War of 1812, and I would 
just had said this to one of our history teachers, like, yeah, that the U.S. It was the first time the U.S. acted as a world power, and the White House got burned, and we got the Star Spangled Banner, yep. and that's about it. Right. <laughs> Whereas for you, the War of eighteen twelve is a very different event within Canadian history. Right, because it represents uh, the only time that Canada, well, I say Canada has been invaded, but clearly it was invaded earlier than that. Um, But it's the first time that the nation of Canada as a territory of uh, the British and of uh, Europeans has been invaded by another nation. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was was the last time that that has ever happened. and the outcome of that, though, as uh, is often pointed out, is two nations with like the longest border in the world that doesn't have a fence all the way across it. I don't say yet, but we'll see how that goes. Um, <laughs> Too soon. Well, yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah. After which became a great partnership and uh, friendship between two nations, being two really large nations on one continent. Um, so I think there's a lot of impacts from there, but um, no, it is interesting. It is a bit of a, a complex issue too uh, for those people who are actually um, aware of it and really into that uh, part of history. Um, I think there's a lot more opinion than perhaps the general uh, uh, public. Um, but go to any video about the War of 1812 on YouTube and read the comments. Right. Right. There's still a lot of uh, uh, disagreement and controversy over who actually won, in air quotes, which you can't see because no problem. Right. Um, and people can't seem to get past that, where at this point, I don't know that it even really matters because it's 200 years in the past and all the history since then hasn't been one of animosity. Not like the right. Past, like, claiming territories and fighting back and forth where other places in the world are still having these conflicts that are going on for thousands of years over right. who owns which piece. And yeah, and this conflict and it's done with and there's a pretty solid border and we go, that's your side, that's our side. And, right. You know? Does the body count matter or is it the legacy that matters? And there you go, right? You know, so, is it the capture of the flag yeah. or is it what endures today? Yeah. And there's a lot of great. And I think that well, Yeah, there's a lot of great stories that really do come out of uh, that particular war, especially when you have uh, families uh, who were living just on opposite sides of the borders, and be, just because of what side of this line on the map they happen to be living on, that's the army that they got um, they joined up to fight for this cause, even though there were opposite causes. Yet they were cousins, right? Or some cases, even brothers. Right, one of them south just across the border. And so they get caught up, and now they're on the side and they're on that side. It's just yeah. because there's a lot of communities and people are living close together, and this imaginary line happened to go through their community or separated their close towns, and now they're on opposite sides. So I think that is also an interesting part of the story. Now, it's not necessarily related to the games part, but I think it's a very interesting part of the history, which quite on. Um, often can get left out of on this day this battle happening, this battle happened, this is the one you know, this is when this great general who was killed at this battle and then this one ended the war and this kind of treatment. 
right? So he's going to teach you as a series of eight important things happen. All these human stories, these interesting people, um, and the things that he went through, there's the things that get left out. And although that's not, again, kind of separating the teaching from the game, just for, for a minute here, uh, that is difficult to work into the game. That's definitely something I like to work into uh, the teaching. Is the, the stories, the individual stories that come out. And I pick up a lot of stories, particularly about uh, War of 1812, because I go with a lot of the reenactments that we do. And this year I started watching them from a lot closer. I've been standing right behind the line, carrying King's colors, because I went and joined the group. That's cool. I love that that's become part of like who you are, too, you know? Yeah. yeah. Well, so... Let's, uh, to wrap this up, and this has been so good. I mean, and honestly, if I were ever in the position where I were to teach, you know, American History 1, you know, because a lot of times, you know, even for me, like a war game is a style of game I've never played, so they can look really intimidating. And, um, you know, and but then if a seventh grade kid can do it, I probably can handle it. So uh, I think this is also really good. Um, amount of encouragement for other teachers to consider going way above probably what they think kids could do and giving them the chance and the ability to do this. Um, talk a little bit, let's wrap this up with you, um, talk about your website and the resources that you have there, because it's certainly a great one in terms of people who are wanting to do more with this um, in their history classes. Yeah, sure. The, uh, the blog on the website, it's uh, bsgames.ca. Uh, the BS stands for Bill and Scott. Uh, I am the Scott, and my uh, business partner, Bill, is the B. Um, mm-hmm. I was joking recently, it's probably better be the, the B than the S. The <laughs> BS, but uh, really, it's how it worked out. And you know what? It helps you remember it, and that's the important part. Absolutely. Um, it was actually originally set up to sell our own games that we're designing. We were also designing games. And then I thought it would be great to have a blog and write down some of the things that I do and the things that I think, right, engage with the community. So that was one of the earlier things that I put up there was about using these other games in class. So I did write a blog about education and gaming and using games in class in general. And I found some other interesting articles and other people talking about the same topic. And there wasn't really too much I could add. I put in my two cents worth and uh, links to a few other online articles that said uh, similar things or had other insights. And then I wrote about this particular lesson or unit that I did using the three games that we mentioned earlier, 1754, A Few Acres of Snow, and The Age of Empires Three. So I decided to write a fairly long blog about that and um, how it went. Uh, some details about uh, what the assignment was about. And then I will want to check through the bottom of the book. I'm pretty sure I put the assignment on the website, too. Cool. I have to check we'll be, uh, Yeah. We will, of course, uh, be happy to share yeah. uh, links to that um, with the show notes when this episode goes live. Yeah. Um, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been really interesting. Mm-hmm. Such a thoughtful, interesting, brave approach to teaching history this way with uh, <laughs> the, the children that I love more than any other age group, of course, our delightful little middle schoolers. Um, if people want to contact you, you know, they can do that through the website, but is there any other way that people can contact you if they would like to know more? Um, yeah, it can go through the website, or the address that will give you there is just contact.bsgames at gmail.com. 
mm-hmm. uh, before they contact me directly. I answer that email anyway. I also have one direct to me uh, through there, which is scott.bsgames at gmail.com. So you can have uh, any questions about the games I've used or the ones that we're developing. Uh, right now we're focused on uh, math games. Um, history games, they're already out there. They're already invented. We're already using them. But uh, we've come up with uh, a math game we're finding is really engaging and a lot of uh, students are having a lot of um, success with practicing their math facts. Uh, just going back to your engagement briefly about having wanted to engage students. And the game we came up with, I just wanted to do something that was going to get students to practice the, the basic, basic facts. Because even now, I see students grade 6, 7, 8, and they're adding numbers together, and the first thing they do is pull out a calculator or a phone, which I possibly take away and say, you can do that one without this. It's two single-digit numbers, add them together. So I wanted to develop something that would help them practice those skills, um, because the technology, I think, has maybe eroded some of those skills, because it's too easy to access technology to do it for them. So I thought a dueling game in the style of uh, Pokemon Yu-Gi-Oh! or Magic, uh, where they're creating equations, or equations, as I call them, in order to cast spells on each other, would be an interesting idea. So I put one together, uh, wrote it out on index cards, um, played a couple games, it seemed to work. Uh, handwriting is hard to read, so I made them on my computer using Microsoft Publisher, and then uh, printed them on index cards, cut those up, took them into the library, hoping no one would notice um, in the library for two hours after school, laminating 100 cards using a photo lamination. And then started playing with the kids in class, and at lunchtime, the same thing. I've got kids coming into my class at lunchtime saying, can we play that game that you made up? Kids aren't even in my class coming into my class saying, can we play that game? Right? And it's a math game. They're sitting there doing math. They're adding and subtracting constantly over and over again. But they want to do it on their own time. It essentially covers the same uh, skills as flashcards, but flashcards are boring. Right. Right? So... Anyways, that's what we're working on uh, now. Next, history is, well, I say it's history, but, you know, we're still doing it. But uh, math is also a big one. So if you ever do a specifically a math-based learning game, you can uh, contact me again. You can go more about that one, too. Awesome. Well, thank yeah. you for being so generous with your resources as well. Mm-hmm. Um, this has uh, this is Kathleen Mercury with another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries. And may your parent emails be friendly and your students be engaged and your administrators be supportive, your resources be plentiful, and all sorts of other magic love and pixie dust that we all wish we had for every single school year. So. Awesome. I hope everyone has a great school year. Uh, Scott, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me on the show. It's been great. Yeah, super interesting. So this has been another episode of Games in Schools and Libraries at Just Keep Having Fun in the Classroom. Bye. Well, thank you for listening to this episode of the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast. You can find out more about us and the people who create this show over at InverseGenius.com and all of our other wonderful, wonderful shows, including on board games, on RPGs, the Inverse Genius podcast, and the Room Escape Divas. We are also now joined by the Party Gamecast and Nephilip, who you might remember as Stephanie, previous co-host here on the Games in Schools and Libraries podcast, and our friend Lynn Theory. Thank you for listening. Games in Schools and Libraries is produced in association with the Georgetown County Library System.